of uh, study and activities planned for our kids. And so as they make their way upstairs, let me encourage you to turn to the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament in your Bible. We are working our way through the the Bible and, and reading through the Bible. And so we have put on our website a Bible reading plan that we would encourage you to go and find. You can go to our website, fbcchickasha.org, on the page where our sermons live. That's what I'm going to call it, the landing page for our sermons, for our messages. There's a link there as well that you can, uh, you can download in a PDF form or you can link to a Bible reading plan. And so we would encourage you, uh, fill that out, uh, fill it out. You don't fill it out. Find that is what I mean to say and join us in, in our Bible reading plan. And you may think, well, it's, it's May. It's the middle of May. We're almost halfway through the year and we are. And I would just encourage you, join us from here. If you haven't been reading along the way, then start. What we're doing each Sunday as we gather together is we're picking a text to study that comes from the previous week's readings. So this morning, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture in Nehemiah chapter 9, which actually comes from yesterday's reading, if you're following along and you're kind of up to speed on the plan. And so as we are working our way through reading the Bible together, we're also working our way through preaching through the story of the Bible throughout the course of this year. And it would be great. I think it would bless you and and it would grow your understanding of the Word if you would join us. But not only will it grow your understanding, but I think this could be a vehicle that God would use to work in your life in a powerful way. And so let me encourage you. Go to fbcchickasha.org, find our sermons page, our landing page for for messages, and and find the Bible reading plan. Join us as we read through and study through the Bible. You've noticed, no doubt, the screens that have this graphic that we're calling Redemption Story, because that's what we've called this plan that we're following through this year, this journey through the Bible together, Redemption Story. And the reason we've chosen that name is because we find in the 66 books of the Bible, one story of God working through the history of his people to bring redemption to us. Of course, we know that that redemption comes through Jesus, but there's, there's an unfolding story of all that God is doing so that we see that in the Old Testament, it's pointing to Jesus. And the New Testament is telling about the life, the ministry, the work of Jesus, his death, burial, resurrection, and even then looking backward at what God has done and pointing us to his his second coming, the day when Jesus would return. All of the Bible, in this sense, is pointing us to Jesus. And so our desire is to see Jesus as the center of the story of the Bible, so that similarly we might see him as the center of our lives as well. Because in this story, we find our story. In history, we find his story of what God is doing. But in that, we find our story of how he's working and continues to work in our lives. And we'll even see that today in the book of Nehemiah. Now, if you know much about the story of Nehemiah, Nehemiah was an instrumental figure in the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem after the period of the exile. So just to kind of briefly summarize and bring you up to speed on who Nehemiah is. Nehemiah is an Israelite who is living in a distant land because he and others have been carried off in captivity or even born in captivity. We don't know a whole lot about the actual backstory because at the point that Nehemiah comes into the story, he's already a grown man and and has this position. But nonetheless, here he is, a figure in the royal court of the king of the Medo-Persian Empire 
who's known to us as Artaxerxes, Nehemiah chapter 2. And Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. Now, the cupbearer is kind of an interesting position because, in a sense, that means that Nehemiah is one of the highest-ranking servants, but his role of service to the king also has this element of security because the job of the cupbearer, you may have guessed just by the title itself, the job of the cupbearer is to be the taste tester for all of the king's food. And that's not just the taste tester in the sense of quality control, right? He's not like, he's not like one of the great chefs from, you know, MasterChef or some show like that. But literally, his job is to taste the food to see if he's going to die, to see if it's poison, to see if somehow, uh, if, he, if he eats the food and he lives. So it's, in, in other words, he, he's like a security. He's, he's a part of the king's inner circle. He in a sense, it's almost like he's a part of the king's secret service, if you will. That's certainly not what they called it, but it, in trying to make some connections with our day. So he's a part of the king's, uh, the, the king's inner circle, a, a trusted confidant of, confidant of the king. And we read in Nehemiah chapter 1 that news came to Nehemiah of the situation in the city of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple and, and the efforts to rebuild the temple that were not going well. We know if you've read the previous book of Ezra that a figure named Zerubbabel, a priest, returns to the city of Jerusalem with designs on rebuilding the city, rebuilding the temple. And then another figure named Ezra, where the book of Ezra gets his name, returns as well. And their plans aren't going the way that they, that they designed, right? Everything is not working the way. And a big part of that is because of the, uh, what we might think of as sort of the, the political or the socio-political situation of, of what's happening. Because in the period of time from when the Babylonians captured the city of Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, fast forward now to this point, when Nehemiah is, enters into the picture and the story and the return of the... the uh, uh, quite a while has gone by, a couple of generations removed from the actual destruction of the temple. And the people in the surrounding area have begun to move in and assert their dominance and assert their, their, their control over the city and, and their desires for the city's wealth. It's, it's uh, all the things that would come through this once grand city of Jerusalem. And when the news of all this comes to Nehemiah in Nehemiah chapter 1, he's brokenhearted and he's distraught. And so we see in Nehemiah chapter 2 that he is just performing his responsibilities in the role of the kingdom, but he's, he's saddened by these events. He's, in a sense, I, I don't want to overuse this word, but to give it some context, he's, he's sort of depressed by all of this. He's downtrodden, we might say. And the king sees this on his face and asks, what's wrong? Nehemiah relates to him the story. And so the king says, well, let's fix that. And so the king sends Nehemiah with an envoy of people and resources to the city of Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. And what we begin to understand as we work our way through the story of Nehemiah is that the call to rebuild the wall is in so many ways a call to revival. Because in order to rebuild the wall, the people had to deal with the reason why the wall lay in ruins 
in the first place. You see, the reason the city was destroyed, the temple destroyed, the wall destroyed, the reason the city lay in ruins, we understand, is because the people did not honor God. And the reason that it remained in ruins, a few generations removed from the Babylonian conquest in Jerusalem, is because the people still continued in their waywardness, continued in their sin. They continued in their evil ways in spite of all that they had endured. And it's this realization and brokenness over this sin and this situation that leads Nehemiah to become this great reformer, this leader of God's people whose desire is to rebuild the wall, but really, when we read the story, is to lead the people to revival. And when I say revival, I'm not talking about revival meetings, the way we think of revival, right? And I'm talking about a a big tent revival. I'm not talking about a series of evenings where they would hear preaching. But I mean the real revival, the, the, the rebirth, the renewal of the movement of God in the hearts of people as they confessed their sin, as they turned their hearts back to God and dealt with the very reasons why all this sin and destruction had come upon them in the first place. And so Nehemiah leads the people to work. We read even that they worked with the trowel in one hand and the sword in the other hand. And the most remarkable and unlikely thing happens. That the, against great opposition, the people worked around the clock. Nehemiah was able to organize people using the, the resources, the financial and the leadership and, and other resources entrusted to him or given to him by the king the Persian king. And so we read in Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 15. Look at this. If if you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Nehemiah 9, of course, but just thumb back to Nehemiah 6. Look at verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th of the month of Elul in 52 days. They rebuilt what they were not able to do over the successive course of generations. They accomplished in 52 days. How is that? Because the people set their hearts to do what was right and what was needed because the people sought reformation and revival and and change. Consequently, the wall was rebuilt, verse 16, chapter 6, verse 16. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. And then this is the key, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. The people around them, the people in the surrounding uh, area, and, and those who wanted to utilize the resources of Jerusalem for their own gain, recognized. It was an uh-oh moment. Uh-oh. The people of God, once again, they, they, they are they're getting their hearts right, and God is being faithful to them. They understood, they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of God. And that's, in a nutshell, the story of the book of Nehemiah. The, the people of God, when they would turn their hearts to do what was right, they lived in the blessing of God's goodness and His provision. But sadly, even in the book of Nehemiah, we see, we see that they turn to God in a, for a moment and turn away from Him the next. The story of, their, of the messiness and the brokenness of their sin plays out over and over. Why is that? Well, it's because if you understand the book of Nehemiah in the greater context of the Old Testament, what it's doing, this this seemingly, not just seemingly, but this habitual story 
this broken record, if you will, of the, of the life and the story of Israel, that they find themselves living out the same sins and the same patterns and the same things over and again, is pointing to the need for a greater Savior. Not just a religious system, not just a temple where people could go and worship, but, but literally a Savior, a God who, who would once and for all deal with their sin. So it's pointing to the need for Jesus. It's pointing for something greater, a greater sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice, a once-for-all sacrifice, the book of Hebrews tells us. That's exactly what Jesus was, the the perfect sacrifice given once for all to make atonement, to pay for our sins. But in Nehemiah, we see the need for something greater. And so we find ourselves in Nehemiah chapter 9, In the midst of this situation, the people have been called to repentance and revival. They've rebuilt the wall, and still the messiness and the brokenness of their sin hounds them because they're not dealing with the real issue by confessing their sins, dealing with the past, living in the freedom and the forgiveness that come when they would walk in a right relationship with God. And so this morning, what I want us to understand is the connection between what's happening for the, the Israelites in the book of Nehemiah and even in our own day. Because, see, we find ourselves similarly drawn to sin. We find ourselves, in spite of all that we've been forgiven of and all that, we've, that, that, that has been washed away through faith in Jesus, we find ourselves with this desire for sin and the wrong things that leads us down the path. And, and, and I know that every one of us in the room can identify with the idea that I do the things that I don't want to do, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 7. Well, how do we make peace with this? How do we make peace with the past? This morning, I want to point us to lessons we learn about making peace from the past as we seek God in revival, as we seek to walk in a right relationship with Him through faith in Jesus. And even that we see in the story of Nehemiah. So Nehemiah chapter 9, let's read the first five verses together. It was Winston Churchill who famously coined the the phrase, the idea that those who don't learn from the past are destined to repeat it. Now, Churchill didn't he didn't come up with that, but he certainly made that idea popularized and sort of, uh, he, he sort of uh, in, emblazoned that in the, in the popular conscience, this idea that we've got to learn from the past in order that we don't repeat the mistakes made by others in history. And that's the heart of what I want us to see from Nehemiah chapter 9. Oh, that if, as we read this, it's like it's, it's crying out to us. Oh, that the people of God would learn from their past mistakes so that they wouldn't continue to do the same things again and again. And yet they do. They stumble in sin because it's pointing to the need for a greater sacrifice, a greater means of forgiveness. But even in that, we understand that we have that greater means of forgiveness through faith in Jesus. May we be a people who would walk in righteousness and faithfulness and uprightness before God as we live in the freedom of forgiveness that comes through faith in Jesus. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 1. Now, on the 24th day of this month, this is the same month pointed to in chapter 8, okay? Although that was the first day of the month in chapter 8, now we're on the 24th day of the month. This is, the the people are gathered together. The, The people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth 
By the way, those are signs of brokenness and repentance, fasting and sackcloth, and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all the foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law, the Lord their God, for a quarter of the day. This is a day that they've devoted to the reading of God's word. And so they spend a quarter of the day. You can do the math of that, right? If you just divide 24 by four, that's six hours. This was a six hour long revival meeting. So I don't want to hear anybody talking about my 30 minute message this morning, right? For a quarter of the day, for another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. And on the stairs of the Levites stood Yeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chenani. And they cried with a loud voice, to the Lord their God. These are names of real leaders, real Levites. And, and the reason these names are important is because it's connecting again. These are real people, real situations, real circumstances. Verse 5. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashbaniah, Sherebiah, Chodiah, Shebaniah, and Pephahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. So they've called for a public assembly of the people, a public gathering of the people there where they would read the word of God. Six hours, a quarter of the day, they would read the word of God. Some scholars think that maybe that's not a reference to a literal 24 hours of the day, but the daytime. And so maybe that was only three hours, okay? Maybe it was, whether it was three or six hours, it was a long period of time. And that was just the amount of time devoted to reading of the scripture, a quarter of the day. Another quarter of the day spent in public praise of the Lord. And so they're devoting, it's a, it's a day that they have set aside and a half of the day literally to this worship of God, calling the people to praise God, to exalt Him, to turn from their sins, to acknowledge the wickedness of their ways. Now, I'm not going to continue to read verse by verse through the rest of the chapter. We are going to look specifically at verse 33 in just a moment. But let me sort of summarize. First of all, if you keep reading in verse 6, I want you to notice in verse 6 and the verses that follow, notice a couple of things. Notice how many times the second person pronoun is used. You, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven. This, what are they proclaiming? They're proclaiming the goodness of God, but also they're proclaiming the brokenness of, of their own ways. So it's the goodness of God contrasted against the brokenness of their sin. And so they go on to detail. And, and, and really what we have that follows is sort of a summary of the history of this people from the time that God called them to be a people into the, the present moment. Sort of a, a history of sorts, a, a, a summary of the people of God and the messiness of the brokenness of their sin. We can summarize it just simply by saying that God showed his goodness and his graciousness again and again, and they fell into sin habitually, over and over. God brought freedom and forgiveness, and they would choose to stiffen their necks and harden their hearts against Him. And ultimately, all of that leads to their, 
their destruction, the, de- the destruction of consequences and the brokenness that comes so that we read this in verse 33. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 33. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. You, you want to know the, the problem of the sin of the people of Israel? Here it is. That in spite of God's faithfulness, in spite of his goodness, they have acted wickedly. And God has given them over to the destruction, the consequence. And the point that Nehemiah is leading the people to understand is that if they are ever, ever to experience the, the faithful love of God in the way that their hearts desire, if they are ever to be the people God has called them to be, if they are ever to rebuild the temple and restore the proper worship of God and once again be the light that would shine to the nations, that it would require that they deal with the brokenness, the wickedness of their sin and their ways. For you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Isn't that true of your own life too? That you can find this this contrast, this juxtaposition, I, I imagine, in your own story of God's faithfulness against your wickedness. I know it's true in my own heart, in my own life. I, I know it could be said of me. I could tell you ways to my shame that I have not responded to God and His faithfulness the way I should. And yet God is all the more faithful. And the point that Nehemiah is calling the people to, and the point that I want us to understand today, is that if we are to experience the goodness of God in the way that he has made it plainly available to us, we must make peace with the past. We must deal with. So let's look at what Nehemiah offers as the the keys here to making peace with the past. Now, You're not going to find this, like Nehemiah is not going to stand before the people as I'm about to give you these five points and say, okay, here it is, everyone. Five points if you will do this, right? Nonetheless, if you read the story and and you dig into the heart of what Nehemiah is calling the people to do here, even the fact that they're returning to the place of God, the, the temple, that they're, that they're calling for revival, that they're confessing sin, that they're reading the scripture, that they're, that they're holding people accountable to do what the word of God is. We find here that all of these points come true in the story of the people of Israel, in the story of Nehemiah. To some degree, you're going to have to dig in and study and read this to, to, to be able to tie each one of these, I suppose, to chapter and verse. But the point that I want us to see this morning is the connection between what's happening in an ancient story of an ancient people and a very modern sense of what's happening in your life and my life, even today in this place, how we can make peace with our past. The first thing that we have to do is acknowledge your sin. The point of what Nehemiah is doing in calling together an an assembly of people is to call the people to acknowledge their sin. That's why when they, when they come, the Levites, those are the, those are the spiritual leaders, right? They're the descendants of Levi. Levi was one of the sons but, uh, of, uh, of Isaac, but we understand that, uh, that, I said of Isaac, of Jacob, I mean to say, but we understand that the Levites are the, they're the religious leaders, right? 
when they enter into the promised land, the sons of Levi, the Levites, they don't have a certain place that has been assigned to them, a, a territory, a region. Rather, they are to be the people who stay with the tabernacle and ultimately the temple when the temple is built and, and perform the, the worship and the right order of these religious things. In fact, all of the priests came from the tribe of Levi. Not every Levite was a priest, but every priest was a Levite, you understand. And so here is a group of people who've gathered together and they've, and they've come prepared, fasting in sackcloth with earth. That means dirt on their heads, right? All of these signs of their brokenness, signs, things that they're doing to acknowledge their sin before God. The truth is, if we're ever going to make peace with the past and, and the brokenness caused by our sin, it begins when we will acknowledge our sin. There is no forgiveness without the confession of sin. Confessing our sin, acknowledging our sin is key to receiving God's freedom, His forgiveness that He lavishes on us. So we must acknowledge our sin. The second step that Nehemiah is calling Israel to, that, that we can follow as well, is to ask God for forgiveness. It's one thing to acknowledge that we have sinned. It's another thing entirely to seek God's forgiveness. So to name our sin, to confess our sin is good and right and necessary, and yet that in and of itself just is acknowledging that the sin is there. We, we need to move to the next step where we, where we ask God for forgiveness. And so we would, I would say we would move from confession of the sin to repentance. Repentance is where we call on the Lord, on His mercy and His grace. It's where we acknowledge the wrong, but we also say, Lord, I'm asking you to forgive this. I'm asking you to, and, and they're doing this publicly, corporately, confessing and repenting of the sins of a, of a people, of a nation who have turned their hearts against the Lord. But the, the truth is still just as applicable for us, that we would personally, each one of us, acknowledge our sin and ask for God's forgiveness, that we would seek His forgiveness. You know, the beauty of, of this truth is that when we seek forgiveness, it will be found. Think about that for a moment. God has promised us that if we would confess our sins, that He will forgive our sins. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us of unrighteousness. When we acknowledge our sin and our wrong before God, He he, for, he gives forgiveness and freedom and grace and mercy lavished on us. So we need to acknowledge our sin. We need to ask God for forgiveness. The next step, if you will, of what's taking place in Nehemiah chapter 9, what should take place in our hearts, is to agree to change. So they've acknowledged their sin. They've asked God for forgiveness. But the next step is saying, Lord, we recognize that unless we change, we will continue in the same pattern. And we will be here again doing this again. There's an agreement that takes place here that they will change. And you can keep reading in the latter verses. It's where they, they renew the covenant in writing. You can read about that in verse 38. Well, what is that? But an agreement to make change. To, re, to renew the covenant, to turn their hearts again to what God has called them to do and then also to act. There's an agreement, that's an initial step, and next is taking action. 
And that's really the fourth point, is act on the things that need to change. So they acknowledge their sin, they ask God forgiveness, they agree to change, and then they act on the things that need to change. Again, agreeing that things need to change, agreeing and understanding really falls short of making change because it requires action. It's not enough just to say, yes, I know this needs to change, I agree, but we've got to go the next step and do what needs to be done to make change. We see that in what Nehemiah is calling the people to. Let's not just acknowledge our brokenness. Let's not just confess our sins, but let's act. Let's repent of them. Let's turn our hearts to the Lord. Let's renew the covenant. Let's go back to what God has called us to do. Let's be the people that God has called us to be, that we might be the light to the nations. Act on the things that need to change. And then finally, put in place measures that will that will keep us accountable. We account for our actions. Nehemiah is calling the people to account for their actions. That's the purpose of the covenant. It's the purpose of the public assembly. It's the purpose of the sealed document that you read about in verse 38. This is a a public accounting for their actions. This is a public record, if you will, that's being created so that they could hold themselves to the commitment that they made on this day they would acknowledge their sins. They would ask God for forgiveness. They would agree to make changes, act on those changes ultimately by pursuing accountability, by accounting for the ways that they will make change, by inviting others in, by by literally putting their name to it, saying, God, we will be a people that follow you. Sadly, if you understand the story of what takes place when you keep reading you find that for, for a time, they did what was right. But before long, they had fallen back into the same pattern of sin. Why? Because even in the story of Nehemiah, we see they're trying to do this in their own strength. Their, their desires are good, but they fall short because they're trusting in their own ability, in their own goodness. And and that's going to lead them short every time, just like if you are trusting in your own goodness, in your own works, in your own power and strength, your will to be better. You're going to fall short ultimately every time. Because you don't just need a better version of yourself, a more disciplined, more religious, more, more meticulous version of yourself. What you need is a spiritual heart transplant. What you need is a transformation from within that comes through the power of God, the Spirit of God, the movement of His Holy Spirit in your heart, the forgiveness that comes through faith in Jesus. That's why I love the way that uh, rather Paul writes about this in Ephesians chapter 2. If you can turn there quickly, Ephesians chapter 2, look at these verses. Paul writes about turning our hearts to the Lord. So I'm going to read from Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. 
It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You see, the freedom, the forgiveness, the making peace with your past ultimately is not just something that is a product of a new and better version of you, but it's something that takes place when you surrender your heart to the Lord, when you receive the mercy and the grace that He has poured out the way it's described here, freely given through faith in Jesus, not a better version of you, but rather Jesus, the one who gave everything for you, working in your place, standing in your place, paying the price, the penalty for your sin, so that you could be forgiven and set free. See, the ultimate way that we make peace with our past, the ultimate way that we accomplish everything that Nehemiah has laid out for Israel is through faith in Jesus. Now, in Nehemiah's day, it's pointing, we understand, towards something greater to come. But in our day, it's looking back at that greater thing which has come, which is Jesus, who gave himself for us, that we might make peace with the past through faith in him. Not by works that we have done. It is the gift of God. Would you be willing today to live in the freedom of his forgiveness, to make peace with your past through receiving the gift of God, which is salvation through faith in Jesus. In a moment, we're going to move into a time of response, a time of invitation, as we call it, because the invitation is this. The invitation is to turn to him in faith, that we might receive the forgiveness that is given to us as a gift. When we acknowledge our sin before God, when we ask for forgiveness, when we agree to make change, when we act on the things that need to change and account for our actions before the Lord, would you find freedom and forgiveness in Jesus today? I want to invite you to bow your head and close your eyes with me. And as we prepare for this moment of invitation, this moment of response, I'm going to lead us in prayer. And then after I'm done praying, we're going to stand and sing a song together. And while we sing, if God is stirring in your heart today, then I pray that this would be the moment that you would make peace with your past by turning to Jesus. Lord, we are grateful that we can have peace with you through faith in your son, Jesus. That as we come to you and we offer our lives to you, as we turn from our sin and turn to you as Savior, we can be forgiven and set free. Move in our hearts now, we pray. We know that ultimately, we cannot make peace with the past in our own strength and our own power, but through faith in you, Jesus, the past is forgiven, the debt canceled. And so we look to you in faith today, asking you to work in our hearts and our lives. And all this we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. I want to invite